Thank you for joining the Once Changing the World, which is India's first Future Tech Meets Sustainability podcast. And today, I'm delighted and honored to have with me Professor Damodaran, who's a distinguished professor in the digital economy, startup, and innovation team. Prior to joining ICRIER, which is the Indian Council for Research on International Economic uh, Relations, Damodaran was a senior professor with the economics area at IIM Bangalore. His areas of specializations include application of new generation digital technologies, the economics of the metaverse and NFTs, architecture of distributed economic systems, blockchain applications for defense sector, IoT models for the food industry, climate and biodiversity financing models based on digital platforms, and sui generis regulations of uh, cryptocurrency, crypto assets, etc. He has authored books such as Encircling the Seamless India, Climate Change and the Global Commons, plus Managing Arts in Times of Pandemics and Beyond. So I, I, I want to start with uh, the, the economics. What would be your views on the key challenges facing India's economy in the aftermath of COVID-19? First of all, let me thank you for uh, thinking about me for this, uh, for your podcast series. India is in many ways in a very unique position because after COVID, many economies have started facing the uh, facing the brunt in different ways. And uh, if you look at our neighbor neighboring countries, they're all uh, you know in, in very bad turmoil. And why even neighboring countries? Look at all the developed countries in the world; they themselves have, have not have limped from the after effects of COVID. Now, what does it mean by saying after effects of COVID? So what happened during COVID, as everyone knows, the governments had to loosen the purse and uh, that money had to be uh, given to people and, uh, who were suffering from COVID so that their jobs, that, that the jobs that they lost uh, was compensated for. So it took various forms. In various countries, they went for large scale uh, stimulus packages, even sending checks home and, you know, and then finding that the person who was to receive the check is no longer at the work, that kind of thing. India did not go for that. India went for a more conservative route, though it was criticized at that time that we are uh, indifferent to the issue of COVID. And uh, we did not indulge in too much of uh, deficit financing, fiscal deficits and all that. It was a more responsible fiscal system. And so, of course, uh, like every other country, uh, uh, with big aspirations, India suffered a big setback in uh, 2021. We had a negative growth rate uh, on the GDP. But uh, starting from 2022, uh, last year, we clocked almost 6.8% uh, growth rate in GDP. And looks like by 2024, we'll again be in, in the range of 6 to 7% growth rate in GDP. So we are really not in a very bad shape compared to many other countries, and our debt is well under control. Now, that makes quite a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, quite a lot of contribution because our debt is something like about 87.5% of GDP, which is basically way below uh, debt levels of Japan, United Kingdom, and others. Now, uh, coming to think of which are the vibrant sectors, well, infrastructure is doing pretty well. IT is still doing well despite the hiccups in the world in the world stage. And uh, the lagging sectors are manufacturing. Manufacturing has to come up, but it is uh, it is slowly limping back. 
so those are the challenges you know right. taking up manufacturing and taking the economy up inflation is fairly under control i wouldn't say compared to many other countries in the world we are not uh, lagging behind uh, we are not suffering because of high inflation we do have an inflation problem but it is still in within manageable levels right. professor i, I mean um... you mentioned about the stimulus package and globally i think you know different nations had different ways to approach you know how do we you know deal with the covid-19 and you know make empower the people like especially i think the america had like you know they actually gave out checks uh we had a 20 lakh crore package and uh, the grouse with, with the common man is that it, none of the 20 lakh crore package reached the common man it was largely it went to the banks and uh, to save these these big organizations what what are, what are your views on that you know in any system uh, there there is bound to be leakages you know in any system there is bound to be leakages not that you know 20000 crores has meant as a stimulus package it exactly hits the pockets so it doesn't happen that way uh, so india also had that problem there there would have been leakages in the system but we should also uh, see from a different point of view uh, i mean the united states today is in some kind of a crisis they are facing a big debt crisis and uh, it is in it's almost to the point of being defaulting on uh, you know on debt we i don't think we have reached that stage a and while we have problems with transfers not happening maybe there have been cases but we opened a lot of uh, accounts bank accounts you know linked a lot of poor people to the bank accounts so i would say that in balance there would have been leakages but not to the extent of misdirected environmental economics again happens to be your expertise now uh, un uh, last year i think released uh, said that we uh, red alerts uh, you know and uh, there was a on on red alert on climate crisis and there was a report which i was th- i think it was done in 1972 which which it's called the Lim- limit to growth uh, report and the report was analyzed on five basic development trends you know which is the population data uh, industrialization data malnutrition data exploitation of raw materials and in destruction of the living uh, environment uh, this was modeled in a in, in a computer algorithm and uh, the output was that around 24 uh, 2020 40 2050 we are heading towards a climate crisis a global catastrophic uh, event and then i think in 2020 guy herrington from kpmg uh, took the same report and remodeled uh, with the current present day data and uh, to to the uh, you know the uh, evolutionary algorithm model and the output again was uh, that 2040 is when we we are going towards a global climate uh, catastrophical event because of a constant consumption without conservation india and india happens to be uh, having the largest numbers of cities in in, in the most polluted uh, list of global cities delhi happens to be the number one from for the last couple of years in the most polluted cities in the world what is india doing when it comes to you know climate crisis see as far as india is concerned we have this you know as required by the uh, the climate change convention uh, reporting system we have our nationally determined contributions where we talk about backstopping 
fossil fuel emissions through a massive uh, green energy program. That's all out there. You know, we are giving a big push to renewable energy and uh, trying to replace fossil fuels at the fastest pace uh, without completely giving up on coal. Right? So we uh, got a slightly we we were criticized for uh, you know the formulation in Glasgow that you know it is phase down not phase out. And that's partly because we also see that uh, that coal as a fossil fuel still has a big macro multiplier effect in terms of livelihoods. Ultimately, it stretches to livelihoods. And in India, in any case, employment situation is not very positive. And if you don't even have uh, the standard energy sources there, then your livelihoods are severely damaged. Uh, so, India's approach is very clear. We want to replace uh, fossil fuels at the very first pace, and we have set targets by 2030 uh, to have renewable energy in built into a big, in a big way. We have also modernized most of the power plants, thermal power plants, supercritical plants, and uh, we are there. But my uh, point is that while all this is going on, uh, what is the method by which we are adapting to changes in the in the in climate. For instance, uh, last year, you would recall last April, May was the worst summer that we ever had. Uh, this year, it is the other way around. It was raining during May. And so, you know, climate change is not just about heat. It is also about weather, I mean, weather variability. So we have that as a very big problem. You know, heat, heat is a bigger problem. And uh, if you look at the heat maps, uh, global heat maps, we will find that there are big, uh, there are pockets in India which are very vulnerable to, uh, you know, uh, temperature rises. Now, that uh, is something which we have to be concerned about. So, the way I would see it is, uh, you know, uh, what I would consider to be a better strategy of climate change is to look at microclimate management. Microclimate management, so you take Delhi or you take Bangalore or any of these cities, you'll find pockets of where the temperatures are low and where the, and pockets where the temperatures are rising. So you look at microclimate uh, management, a kind of an airshed approach, if you can put it that way, and try to handle this through community-based organizations, uh, which are affected by those microclimate plans, and have a solution that works out better. Now, this, in essence, what I'm saying is, this is consistent with my philosophy of blockchain. Because the blockchain basically says you distribute the problem rather than distribute the resources and rather than centralizing it. Don't even have decentralization, go beyond that and have the distribution. So if I know how to manage my community area, which is facing tremendous heat, and I know uh, that it's partly because the green cover is missing, I am going to take steps to see that those things are restored and done. Here our mentality is that let the government come forward, let local governments come forward, corporations come, city corporations come forward to help us. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. It has to be distributed approach to climate change. And nobody is talking about that language. Now, Professor, we, can you can you elaborate on this because you, you said yeah, I mean yeah, yeah because yeah. you you you're using the term of going beyond decentralization and yeah, blockchain yeah. You know? so it's maybe true. elaborate on, on this so you know I mean everybody understands you know what you're trying to yeah. mean by so, microclimate management yeah. with blockchain yeah. so I, let me put it this way 
Uh, I live in a place in Delhi right now where, you know, I lived in the past in certain other places. Now I am living in a place which is next to a small park, right? It's a green, greenery, green spot. I decide, I find it definitely a big, not a very big cooling effect, but when I come there, the rigors of heat is less felt in, uh, in that spot than the other spots where I used to live. That's because the green space has been conserved by the community. And it's a small thing, but many, many smalls make a very big uh, macro advantage. People think it's small, so why are you talking about this anecdotal stuff? I'm not talking about anecdotal stuff, I'm talking about reality. I feel very comfortable. I don't have to own the AC. So I asked him who maintains this park. It is managed by the community. And every time there is some hit on the tree, if a tree has to be locked or, you know, collided, it is opposed by the community. It says, no, this is our green space. This is what keeps our temperatures under control, right? So this is an example of distributed management, okay? Now, uh, look at the way decentralization is. What is centralized management? Basically, a government department which sends its line employees to come and solve the problem. They, and they'll say, oh, there's too much of heat, so we'll try to fix something. It doesn't happen because they don't know what is the demand side situation there. So then uh, the next step is to say local governments can be empowered to do it. So it is called decentralization. Now, decentralization is a much abused word. Decentralization, people think, brings everything. Decentralization implicitly talks about centralization, isn't it? You will only decentralize when you have a centralization problem. So it is like the benign thing, you know, we have centralized and now we are very kind, we are giving you some powers. I'm talking of distributed management, which I see in my, uh, in my place. Community manages it. They are ensuring that the parks are safe. Corporation comes and does a good job. And the local government has to just uh, facilitate, not manage. It's the community which needs to take charge and we need to stop our over-dependence on, on governments or big organizations or some kind of a funding. It's us, the common right. uh, people who have got to take a stand and understand that uh, the climate crisis is real. That's the reason UN has declared Code Red. Now, you mentioned yeah. about conserving these green spaces and you know it, it needs to be managed by community. But that also is being eroded because of our capitalistic structure, you know, because there will be some kind of a builder who will understand that in this patch of city, the green patch is doesn't make so much commercial sense. Maybe a tower would make a commercial sense. How, how do we tackle this? Because the greed versus that decent, even the decentralization, I completely understand. I think we, let's not be too too much too many uh, too idealistic about blockchain and that it's going to do everything. But maybe maybe talk about this this force, this external force called capitalism, and a hierarchical stru structure which is top down hierarchy, uh, and, and that everything works that way. Or banks. Uh, or institutions and everything. Now, decentralization says, you know, it, it, it's a, a bottoms-up approach. How do we how do we get into this world that we're talking about? See, the, the problem is that bottom-up approach is held with a lot of suspicion. Why are you going up? You remain very important, you know. <laughs> and up is seen as a threat to the state power, right? Now, I will tell you my example. I moved in from Bangalore. Now, Bangalore is a city which has been, which has seen real estate flourishing and most of the lakes are gone by. It was a city of lakes. It is on the crest. 
right? It's on the crest. Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, Mysore is below, and then you have Bangalore at the crest. And Bangalore is supposed to a sleepy cantonment uh, kind of a town, right? Uh, where people got most of the resources fell within the city, the tanks and lakes and all that. Most of the lakes have been destroyed because of unmitigated uh, urbanization. Now, that is a no-brainer to say that there was urbanization, real estate pressure and all that. It has gone to such a point where the courts had to intervene, the Supreme Court itself had to intervene, to ensure that the green belt of Bangalore, if we had, has to be observed. And you can see residential areas coming up on the outskirts of Panagata National Park. So Bangalore is something very unique. It has got a national park, but it's jutting on the southern side of it. Right? It's an elephant tribe. So you have houses coming very nearby, and the advertisement is very clear. You can see it, get a good view when you get up in the morning, have a cup of tea. You, you have seen the advertisement, right? And then you look at Banargata National Park and some uh, and you can enjoy it. But at what cost? So I think the problem starts with those advertisements. Right? You can see a lake and then you destroy the lake. It is well known for that. So the greed of capitalism comes partly because there is no um, you know, resistance, a consumer aversion, even if it is not in an articulation, a consumer cynicism should be there for capitalism to take a hit. Otherwise, they don't care. You can put in advertisements and you can go and buy it. I myself have bought an apartment, but I didn't look for Banarga National Park because something in me said that, you know, that's not a good idea to buy it because I need a place to live. But Banarga National Park, it is good to go and see once in a while. Subject to the regulations. So I think it is a kind of aversion and a cynicism on the part of the, you know, the ordinary person, the citizen, that will blunt the edge of capitalism. Otherwise, capitalism will merely go. Here, we all want to be part of the tribe. I want to see Banarvata National Park in the morning. I would like to see an elephant and shoot a picture, put it up in Facebook, right? Or Instagram. Right. And I take a lot of pressure, uh, pleasure in that. I think cynicism is not there because every citizen, as Bernard Shaw said, wants to be part of that deal, you know, wants to enjoy that unsustainability, though they all talk about sustainability. That would include people like me as well. But I am sufficiently cynical now. So I am uh, telling the countervailing power to capitalist rampant uh, capitalism is, is cynical. And that cynicism translates to consumer resistance. Protests don't, because protests are put down. You know, so. yeah, Professor, you've been deeply vested in blockchain, cryptocurrency, crypto assets. Now, the Indian government obviously has put some taxes and uh, there has been a reverse migration of sorts, you know, of these uh, uh blockchain Web3 or startups moving to greener pastures such as Dubai and Singapore. Uh, a, do you think blockchain web trio is going to play a significant role in 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 uh, businesses uh, here in india business and possibly government b do you think that there could ever be a day when fiat currency would be replaced by cryptocurrency you have to answer your question uh, i am sufficiently enamored of uh, austrian school no, Australian school of Von Mises and Hayek. 
they are the forefathers of this cryptocurrency movement. Though I don't think Satoshi Nakamoto would have read the book, he does not exist in the first place. Even if he existed, would he have read Mises? I don't think so. But the idea was very simple. Every person will can have his own currency. Right? The currency which gets accepted is the currency the, the most credible person has. I mean, in essence, I'm putting it poetically. So I, uh, I find that it works in, it does not work in practice. Uh, because uh, we had many, many currencies way back in 19th, 19th century, 17th century, 18th century. Uh, there was no Federal Reserve in the US till about 20th century, beginning of 20th century. The bucket shops which are producing currency, checks and check systems, and banks were running that. But that has become so sufficiently strong and centralized that uh, the hope of cryptocurrency replacing fiat currencies won't happen in the near future, at least 20 to 25 years from now. And that's partly because uh, of this, it is political. There's a political economy in fiat currency. It is not that, you know, it is uh, something, it's a good technical instrument, so let us, it doesn't happen then. But having said that, I have a lot of faith in crypto assets. That remains undiminished. I still feel tokens are very important. Because again, tokenization is an idea which came from Austrian school. Tokenization is a good idea because it to what is tokenization? You reduce services to a token, right? And if you hold the token, you have a right to assurance. You have a right to good service. It's an entitlement. If you have cash with you, you're not sure whether that service will come to you. So that is the uh, way forward as far as I am concerned. And Decentralized organizations, I talk about you, you know, park management and that. They will not be run by tokens. The tokens will incentivize you. Small, small tokens will, it doesn't threaten the fiat currency. And uh, at the same time, it works for providing local services. So that is my philosophy for it. Now, coming to your other question, yes, India has seen Web3 uh, startups. Very interesting startups have come out. If you look out, um, there are alternatives to Uber, there are alternatives to um, a lot of um, technologies which are coming in Web3 space, which pro protect your personal data without being, you know, you don't snoop into somebody's personal data. So those are the things which are coming up in the Web3 space. And as far as metaverse is concerned, education is just taking over. We are creating virtual MBAs. You know, companies are coming forward to give MBAs which are much more immersive and experiential rather than typical classroom pedagogy. So there is, there is a lot of things happening. The problem is Web3. Web3.0 is one thing. Web3 is different. I've been writing on that. Web3 is radical because it is blockchain and crypto. Now that will meet with some resistance. But uh, if that cryptocurrency angle is taken out, it remains a very promising technology because you are distributing the product. You are going for distributed ownership, local tokens. They will service the whole thing. So local uh, services get paid for, settled at the local level rather than getting centralized. So those are the good things that I see. Exciting times, uh, Professor. Right? You mentioned out. You know, I mean, there, there are uh, alternates of these Web3 startups for Uber, alternates for Zoom, and which does it in a in a much beautiful distributed way without encroaching on users uh, data or manipulating users data 
so so exciting part but but you, you i'm just going to probe that uh, this thing further of you know the uh, cryptocurrency replacing fiat you know you said it could take like maybe around 20 25 years and you you mentioned that you know it's uh, it's because the power of the state the state power will never allow for something like this to happen but what at least i am seeing from my my perspective is that you know the power of state is waning you know earlier uh like power powers of big banks and institutes are waning you know it's the big tech which is becoming more more powerful and and, and it's not just that it's it's the 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 technology is becoming stronger than the technologist for I, I, what i'm trying to say is, is that you know there are technologies such as artificial intelligence which which is becoming self improving and eventually it's on the pathway to artificial general intelligence even with the narrow intelligence you know we have something called the chat gpt4 which kind of uh, is disrupting all possible in industries you know and and there are lots of uh, industries which are getting automated and when, once things get automated we might get into the pathway of ubi universal basic income you know so so uh, so you you mentioned about uh, blockchain and metaverse so so maybe can, can you uh, elaborate on the digital economy like the metaverse you know we, we are we are being pushed into this virtual world though it's very very uh, rudimentary at this point of time you mentioned about uh, mbas for metaverse and you know could you elaborate on this you know what could be the opportunity once this technology this metaverse becomes more widespread and it converges with ai and blockchain other tech stack yes uh, it's a very loaded question say before i get into it let me clarify so 20 years of mismanagement of fiat currency for it to be replaced by cryptocurrency so unless you are really going to mismanage fiat currency and there are some signs of it right now but if that prolongs then that's what i meant i didn't have uh, why 20 years because that's uh, complete i mean it's just a random number that i have to give the length of time that it will take for that to happen Uh, anyway coming back to the point you know the most interesting aspect of uh, what you said is that nation states and governments are losing power to corporations and that's a, that is happening in the us it is happening in india it is happening in every part uh, corporates are becoming more important than and they have world ambitions also you know they want to be the next authorities right but my point is uh, is something different now given that reality where do you find uh, metaverses and blockchains and all that these are led by the very same companies which centralize the internet right internet has been centralized by three or four companies that is why web3 has uh web3 has uh, come about the first two webs were also highly centralized now web3 is supposed to decentralized they say decentralized and against it i said distributed you know that kind of a thing so the way i see it is to answer your question uh metaverse will be there maybe with or without blockchains it will have two variants of that and you will find some cryptocurrency also getting settled and traded and the corporations will also have their versions of metaverse the distributed communities are also aspiring to have their own uh, you know versions of metaverse and uh, web3 
So it is, uh, it is a very complex world. And because of the pulls and counter pulls, the existing system will last for a longer time than you think. So, Professor, really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast. Uh, you know, my last question is, is that, you know, the, these these complicated dynamics which is being played out, you know, the metaverse, web trio, uh, generative AI, which is doing text to image, text to video, and so on and so forth. In this scenario, what is the future of education? Or, you know, how it's going to look like? And maybe, you know, possibly also give a synopsis of your book, the new book, Managing Arts in Times of Pandemics and Beyond. Well, um, I didn't touch upon AI at all. When, in fact, I forgot to do that. Chat GPT-4 is a big threat to the existing education system, teaching and learning systems. Now, Chat GPT-4 is a threat because it, it sees, I mean, it really raises the risk of completely overturning the existing pedagogy. So if you notice, the Indian, a lot of schools in India are opposed to that because children are relying on Chat GPT for their homework. So now the resistance is we'll ban Chat GPT, right? You see the parallel in crypto also, we'll ban it. And then slowly they're saying, no, we'll change the homework pattern. We'll not allow carry home exams anymore. So that's another response, right? We'll have the traditional paper and pen exam. So this is the pressure. But yet, I do find some people, some institutions, educational institutions, saying that let us change the way of examining students. Why do we even have to give homework and make them write? Because then chat GPT steps in. Give them something experiential. Create a craft. Stand there and create it yourself. Do it yourself. So, so what I'm saying is that kind of a trend will take over. So uh, it will, over a period of five to six years, you'll find ChatGPT people will be only seeing it as a knowledge enhancer. But the more education will be gravitating towards more hands-on approaches. Hands-on approaches maybe in the metaverse also. In metaverse you can do, I want to create a new uh, engine. I can create it in the metaverse and show to people I'm worth being employed, right, but your company. And you can even do fancy ideas in metaverse because it's a, the idea of digital twin. You, know? you can create a digital and then say that you give me some money for doing it. The same thing in the in the real world. So all these possibilities are there. So chat GPT, yes, it's a big threat. It's a big threat in the sense it gives you answers for questions. If you are asking ordinary questions, you are going to, uh, you are going to be finished as a teacher. You have to answer, you have to get more tough. You have to not talk about engines and carburetors in the class or draw a diagram. You'll say you create an engine in the class. So we may get, because of chat GPT, we may get a different genre of students who come for practitioners. So that's how I see. So AI has its limits. There's a big debate going on whether it should stop now or it should go beyond that. I'm not wanting to get into this effect, but it will have a big effect in the world of arts. Now I'm coming to my book on arts. It talks about technology. My book was written during the, uh, between 2021 and 2022. And I was documenting exactly what was happening in different museums and performing arts theatres uh, during those difficult days. And I proceeded 
to discuss about the implications of those things that I observe uh, in terms of uh, economic theories and management theories and all that. So that is a summary of my book. So what I try to do is I examine two things. I looked at museums. I also looked at performing arts theaters. I didn't get into crafts. And I also looked at cultural policies of five countries, including India, Canada, United States, Russia, and uh, one more, uh, yeah, and Japan. So I looked at these countries and uh, then I related it to what was happening in uh, the uh, pandemic period. So most of the well-to-do, well-endowed museums like Guggenheim and uh, MoMA, uh, Metropolitan Museum of Arts, they all went for VR and AR, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality in a big way. And the Art Basel, which is supposed to be one of the leading art festivals in, in the world, they shifted to augmented reality. Uh, no, sorry, they shifted to virtual reality. And also they provided a 360 degree view of what was happening in the galleries and the three dimensional 360 degree view. So I could sit at home and, you know, sort of buy things in the art fair. Whereas in good old days, it was not a democratized thing because art fairs were, you know, where the rich went, they were naturally getting an access to their places. And the person explaining what the product is spends more time looking at, um, and after he's convinced that this person carries a good wallet, strong wallet. Here, you could see it from the screen. Anyone can appreciate the art product and maybe he's, uh, even an un a person who thinks it is unaffordable also gets to see the art fair in far greater detail. Now, what has happened to performing arts theatre? There's a micro uh, performing arts theatre in Kerala, uh, performing Kudiyatam. I know that person for very long years, uh, 20 years. Uh, I've seen this artist grow into a very big artist. So what did he do uh, during the COVID time? He went for uh, Facebook Live at that point and he streamed it. He streamed all his performances. And when he streamed the performances, he got two sources of revenue. People were voluntarily donating to him. And he had a bank account to which it was transferred. There was no blockchain or cryptocurrency <laughs> or anything. This was a big boom. He started complaining about, you know, government grants are not coming on time and all that because he was not bothered. Even today, I don't think him, I see him complaining much because he has his Facebook live running in the evenings. So that is supposed to have been the big thing that pandemics did, that a small theater suddenly found the feet, small galleries suddenly found the feet, especially those who took up technologies. And they were empowered, that is the point. Till then, I used to think that digital technology is all for the rich. No, I found that it is not. It is also digital technologies have uh, benefited the, the small to small artists. Now, and they're not decentralized or distributed yet, they got two revenue streams, which keeps them going. Right? So those are some of the findings. I've also looked at some of the large theaters. Uh, I've looked at uh, small theaters, Mariinsky, for instance, in Russia. It's a fabulous ballet theater. Then Guggenheim in the US, as far as the museum is concerned, our own Victoria Memorial Hall in Kolkata. But Indian museums and galleries have not did not embrace digital technologies to that extent. Uh, but India's small-time performing arts theatres they embraced it and got wonderful results. 
So these are some of the findings. And just as I was about to finish the book and send it to the library, Mark Zuckerberg announces that he is going for Meta. So I put it as a postscript and said what Metaverse is. Uh, and that is how I ended. Now, how do I see Metaverse? We have uh, government, uh, one thing about India is we have declared virtual museums. So some of our leading museums and national museum is it's a virtual museum as well. So that has that sense of reachability, which we have seen by treating it as an elementary virtual museum, can be seen. You know, a lot of people get into, uh, many people get into national museums and, you know, national museum uh, virtual, they do the virtual tours and come to uh, someone in a, a good knowledge based on what is happening, what are the artifacts assembled, what is the history and all that. So those interesting things are happening even without the metaverse. Now with metaverse, you are having your own avatar. You can create your own uh, digital version and you will be going and uh, I mean, looking at uh, Da Vinci's uh, you know, painting and you know you can be even drawing something on the top of it. It doesn't matter because you're not ruining anything. Right? So that is the kind of thing. Now what generative arts does, AI does is something even more I mean, radical. It takes something uh, from Da Vinci and it will put uh, Da Vinci and Rafael together and create a new image altogether, which is absolutely bizarre. So that is can be bizarre for a lot of people. For some people, it will be very interesting arts, right? And there is a controversy whether we should have this kind of nonsense going on. Human agency creates things. They are creative. But why is this machine coming and creating things? You know, machine is not an agency. And machines are not, robots are not become singular in the sense that general intelligence, they are not, they have still not developed their own egos. But I am an artist. I am also an artist. So that is meeting with mixed responses. But I find that Metropolitan Museum of Modern Arts has got a system of using AI. Uh, uh, got a system of using AI for curating, recurating their collections. So that is something which is absolutely uh, fascinating because they are discovering their wealth much better through AI than they thought they would. But you know where the problem will come? The problem will come when the AI starts redrawing the metro MOVA's architecture itself and saying, this is lousy, so let me re redo it. Now that is going to not be a problem. So there are areas where AI gets it, which has not been touched by human beings and which is acceptable to which meets the needs of human beings. It will be accepted. But when it goes out of control and starts doing things which we accept as moral standards, that is where it will have a problem. And in arts, it is bound to happen because you can, you know, you have no concern about moral rights and other things which lawyers talk about, right? There is nothing in how can I tell the machine what is a moral right? So you, the machine will come up with things which are absolutely bizarre. Right. Professor, really, really appreciate you taking time, being part of the podcast, sharing your insights. And this to the last question, you spoke about the education and how ch things like, you know, a large language model such as ChatGPT4 is perceived as a threat. Uh, you know, and I hope that the mindset changes and we, you know, perceive it as a partner rather than a threat. 
to to these technologies you know even how we were looking at banning these technologies possibly understanding it better so that we incorporate it better for human need rather than just personal greed because i guess technologies get pushed out or pushed away is because a certain capitalistic structure or certain entrepreneur chooses to maximize profit by manipulating the consumer rather than then enabling uh, the consumer so i hope that we kind of change because i think there's some solid dynamics which is being played out you know in in, in the online digital economy where this education also is going from traditional to you know these massively open online education moocs you know which is pretty much yeah. free for and, and it kind of democratizes uh, education and and you mentioned about how your book talks about how performing artists are, are you know being empowered by enabling uh, you know the, the use of the technology and i and and i i don't think it's only performing arts you know i think because of covid i think it's it's touched all businesses i think in in the next maybe decade or so all businesses all institutions will have a certain layer of tech so i think instead of pushing these these tech stack away we need to partner it and, and leverage but yes when does this tech become uh, or, or gets general purpose intelligence like human beings that's when i think maybe the complications will arise you know so so but exciting as well as scary times a- any last notes that uh, you would want to leave our audience with well i should say that uh, i am looking forward to some exciting times with teaching i am uh, bangalore as a very ambitious uh, program it's a well known actually it is attached it has its own platform ibmbx and it also has uh, as hist its platform to edx which is a harvard mit platform i have two courses running on that and uh, You know, I should tell you that one is on arts, one is on IPRs. Uh, so my experience with MOOCs is, learn to talk to the wall, then you are a very effective teacher. You, know, you, you don't see anyone. Whereas a standard teacher is used to seeing students how they emote and how they react and all that. Here you are just talking to a wall. And if you learn that art, then you will be good. The only problem is after that when you switch over to the real classroom. you should not be talking to the wall again you are fairly interactive so this is exactly the difference moocs unfortunately is one sided though it has great prospect the reachability is amazing but you are an actor you are shooting for a film so and you don't get to see the audience right so actors go and sit in the uh, and watch their own screen how is the audience reacting but metaverse has yes. this concept of getting that reaction not through you but maybe a better version of you because it all depends on what dress you are wearing and you look even better because you are uh, you are designing as per your taste students also come there you talk and then you start relaxing the discipline of you know an educational institution see how creativity springs up so i think i am looking for converting my elective course into a metaverse i have a elective course which i used to run and i am it is called global cons negotiations it used to be a fairly well subscribed course so when i was leading i am the students did ask for it the course will be there as you can see it in metaverse so basically i think metaverse is all about you can see it yourself how you are performing as a detached view while you are performing right that simultaneity 
and that is something which is the next and most exciting stage in education and i'm not saying that everything about metaverse will be fine but uh, it also has its abuses you know that you know law and order problems and moral issues and all that but it promises a new era of teaching as well as pedagogy as well as learning so this this on this note i think i would like to thank perfect thank you thank you sir really appreciate you taking time being part of the podcast and you rightfully pointed out i think with the metaverse you won't be just speaking to the walls like you do in moocs you know you'll actually be seeing these holographic images of your students all around you know and and right, these students right. would not just be restricted to a specific geographic uh, location you know they'll be spread all around the world and instead of just maybe one or two it could be hundreds and thousands of students from all around the world so in that note really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast to my listeners if you like what you're seeing here then please press the subscribe button and until next time see you guys bye bye thank you Thank you professor really appreciate this